What role do colleges and universities play in building an anti-racist future? This podcast series, Building the Anti-Racist College and University, seeks to begin examining this question. Through interviews with administrators, faculty, researchers, policy experts, historians, and students, each episode in this series examines one important piece of beginning to conceptualize anti-racist colleges and universities of the present and future. This series was produced as part of a term project during fall 2020 for Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas, United States. The foundation for this project was Ibram Kendi's 2019 text, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Each student in the course designed one episode seeking to unpack, question, problematize, or dissect a particular area related to building anti-racist colleges and universities. The series in no way is exhaustive, prescriptive, or capable of answering every question. But collectively, the series adds to an ongoing conversation in higher education about anti-racist futures. We hope it inspires dialogue, reflection, engagement, and action on colleges and universities in the United States and around the world. We hope it inspires ongoing work, research, activism, policy, local, regional, national, and international action. We hope it brings us one step closer to an anti-racist future in post-secondary education. This episode is How to Make Your College Classroom Anti-Racist. Hello, and welcome to another episode in our mini-series, Building the Anti-Racist College and University. My name is Erica Herrera, and I serve as this episode's host and interviewer. I'm delighted to present to you Dr. Charles Davis, who is an assistant professor in the Center for the Study of Higher and Post-Secondary Education at the University of Michigan. Dr. Davis' teaching and research interests focuses on issues of race and racism, systems of oppression and structures of domination in higher education. He has received several awards for his work, such as faculty member of the year by the University of Southern California, Rosier Post-Secondary Administration and Student Affairs Network. Recently, Dr. Davis was named the 2020 Emerging Scholar by the Diverse Issues of Higher Education publication. Dr. Davis has also published several articles in top peer-reviewed academic journals including the Educational Foundations Journal and the Community College Journal of Research and Practice. Dr. Davis is currently producing a documentary about the structural barriers facing black youth in education titled Freedom is, Freedom is on its Way, the Story of the Dream Defenders. Dr. Davis has received funding support for his research from the Lumina Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the National Center for Institutional Diversity. Dr. Davis. Welcome and thank you for accepting my invitation. So the topic for this podcast is to explore the different ways faculty at colleges and universities across America can develop, implement, and promote anti-racist practices in their classroom. You have authored several articles throughout your career. 
One of them was co-authored with Dr. Sean Harper and was published in the American Association of University Professors website in 2016. The article was titled, Eight Actions to Reduce Racism in College Classrooms. So I would like to use this article to start our conversation. So in that article, you and Dr. Harper wrote about how the media we consume throughout our lifetimes shape ideas and expectations about particular racial groups. For instance, black students being good at sports but bad at writing, or Asian students not needing help in their math and science classes. Your claim, uh, you claim that those preconceived ideas are brought into the classrooms by the professors, and it is important that professors recognize their implicit biases. So the question is, from your opinion and experience, how can professors remediate what you call the racial illiteracy and come into the classroom as an open book without preconceived opinions about their students, particularly based on their students' race and ethnicity? Uh, thanks for the question, Erica. It's um, an important one. I think one thing that's really critical to understand is that there are no instances in which we don't come into classroom spaces with our biases, right? I think a big part of this is being able to acknowledge and account for those biases in ways that will um, ensure that we check them, right, as our approach to teaching and learning takes place. Um, so when I think about that, what that means is thinking about students as also experts of their own experience, right? As faculty, we often assume that we have all of the answers, that we understand how things need to be done, and we don't take stock of what students enter into the classroom with. In a K-12 world, we talk about this in the context of uh, funds of knowledge, Louise Mole's work, um, and, and many other folks who have now made this successful into entire education, uh, including Judy Kiyama's work, um, talks about thinking about uh, students that enter into the classroom with different funds of knowledge that help them make sense of the world, that help them make sense of the topics that we talk about in our class, because we presume that students aren't experts, right? We assume that they don't have anything to add to the conversation, that they're just receptacles to you know, take on information that we share. And I think that's a huge mistake uh, because students do have a wealth of knowledge and experience that they can contribute. So we need to take stock of what students um, know. Um, can you give me one second? Okay, sorry, eight and a half month. Oh, all of us very happy and energetic today. Um, so in, in addition to that, I think it's important that um, folks treat racial literacy is a competency unto itself, right? Many faculty that don't teach in these particular areas um, often don't think of it as a skill set or a competency that needs to be developed. And so just like we would take on understanding or learning a new concept or a new theory or a paper that was recently published by digging into that literature, um, right, we should do the same thing. And so part of what uh, Dr. Harper and I offer are thinking about ways to create, you know, syllabi even for ourselves, like what are sort of the leading topics and, and resources being explored um, around best practices to teach racially diverse students. Um, you know, we should be able to construct these ways of, of building a knowledge, right, which is why we call it a literacy or a competency. These are things that we can, in fact, remediate and address. Um, and similarly, like what conferences might we be going to to develop this professional competency? NCORE, um, the National Conference on Race and Ethnicity in Higher Education, is one place that we might think that faculty could go to, to help, uh, you know, improve their own understanding of these particular things. So we have to approach this um, area as something that can and should be understood and learned, right? Because if racism in and of itself is a, a socialization process, it's a learned behavior, then one might imagine that it can also be unlearned. And one way to do that is to just improve our own competency based on the syllabi that we could develop having critical groups of colleagues and friends um, and attending professional opportunities that would better develop that competency. Mm -hmm. Right. And that kind of goes to another question I have for you. 
because yes, you're right, uh, it should be in all disciplines, but uh, a lot of uh, professors are not encouraged to do this anti-racist pedagogy, like some colleges, like the, the humanities, the social sciences, the education, the health sciences, they're more likely to do and embrace this anti-racist uh, classroom pedagogy and in, be inclusive and all of these things, but like other colleges like the science, the engineering, even the business, they're not. So, and I have seen that on, on, on my own uh, experience. I'm a college professor myself and I see these differences. So, and just like a follow-up question would be, how can we encourage all the faculty across disciplines to embrace this idea of inclusivity and, and things in a discipline that math, for example, not that they don't care personally, but you know what I mean? Like it doesn't fit in their in their curriculum kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to, to lower um, the need for an expectation of professional egos, right? And I think the professional ego often limits our ability, our capacity to recognize where we need to improve and what things that are still left to learn. Um, and so I think that maybe happens particularly in, in the STEM fields, in part because we're made to think that diversity isn't a STEM related issue. And yet when we think about the you know, scholars who are taught and the even sort of uh, misattribution of certain types of contributions are to white scholars who actually were using uh, racially minoritized scholars to make some of those things happen, right? Or the numerous numbers of black inventors who had their work co-opted or even stolen by white folks and we attribute those advancements in technology, right? That there's a narrative to be understood um, about the diverse contributions of people of color in those spaces. So I think that's um, a really important part that the professional ego has to relinquish its own uh, desire in, in and of itself to say like, there's a broader conversation that needs to happen here. And we can also just look at the data, right? Like we need to stop trying to explain issues of racial variation or racial difference to anything other than systemic racism, right? There's a reason that these programs um, typically do not have a number of racially minoritized students in them in the same way that they don't have a number of uh, women in a lot of these programs in part because there have been consistent systematic barriers to their not only entry into, but their retention over time. Um, and so we have to look and ask ourselves, why is that, right? Why is it that even when we are enrolled that our racially minoritized students are assessed in ways that are not consistent with their white counterparts when they're not given the same second chances and they're not giving you know opportunities to engage in uh, undergraduate research right all of these things are things in which we can understand how racialization and other forms of marginalization takes place and happen i think that's just an important thing to look at and to be considered that um like this is a problem and we need to address it and so what can we do yes um definitely and uh, that takes me to uh, actually another one of my questions which this epic uh this podcast kind of uh, uh rooted from and that is the book by um Ibram Kendi about how to be an anti-racist. And one of his arguments is that we should, uh, in, in, in terms of changing what, what we're talking about here, uh, that racist ideas manipul manipulate us into seeing people as a problem, but it's really the policies that are the problem. So his argument is that we should focus on changing policy instead of the groups of people. So having that online, and I know it's a big, big, broad question, but uh, one, one, one question here, do you think that change could start at the classroom, kind of go bottom up, or, or it has to be uh, uh, the, um, up down? Yeah, so I would actually contest uh, Kendi's framing here. Um, and Ibram's a great person. He and I have always had very generative conversations. Um, but I think we often fall into this dichotomy of either or, right? Um, because policies don't create themselves, right? Like people create them. Um, and so I don't know that 
it's an either or of whether we can focus on people or policies. I think it's both. Um, and I think that's what we do in the field of higher education and in education generally, right? Like we are in the people business. We are here to generate the best versions of people as possible. And so when we think about the people who are going into policymaking, right, when we think about higher education policy in particular, those are people who go through doctoral programs that never have to meaningfully engage with issues of power, privilege, or the politics of difference. And so um, for one, I have to say that yes, the classroom becomes a site of uh, revolutionary struggle in that regard, right? Like we are contesting and debating ideas, many of which are inherently racist. Um, and if we don't contest and push people in that direction that are going through these programs, we will continue to end up with policies that although may not be explicit, right, implicitly in their outcomes result in uh, racial disparity. So I think we have to accept as an educator, otherwise, like, what are we doing in this work anyway, right, if we can't help people develop and evolve, um, that yes, change can definitely happen, but it's going to be a both and. Um, and similarly, right, there are scholars who come to uh, and are asked to testify when policies are being debated and right, whether bills will pass or not about the possible um, experiences. We see this a lot with the affirmative action cases. We've seen this in the amicus curiae briefs that have been developed. Um, and so I think we have to accept that both of these things are necessary um, because if not, again, like we don't have a policy generator that doesn't involve people putting in information or interpreting information. And so in the same way, policy not only is not uh, objective, um, in that, right, that uh, people are highly subjective in the ways that they uh, approach the policymaking world. And that often, again, is not in conversation with racially minoritized people. Majority of policymakers um, are white, right? And most of them are not um, in other rungs of society. We know that most of the policy that even comes up, a lot of the progressive policy in particular, it emerges from communities, it emerges from activists and movement workers, and yet they are not invited to the policy table when it comes to generate and put bills on the floor. Um, so these are all ways that we have to lower the walls that uh, limit access to certain folks and white folks in particular and white folks of particular class um, and, and gender as well, who are making these policies and have never been challenged or had to trouble uh, what it means to do these things in race conscious ways. Right, I agree. And uh, this challenging also, like a lot of people are kind of intimidated when things like this are uh, being talked about. So uh, in your article, you mentioned the importance of uh, using the classroom in productive ways when this type of uh, when this type of um, conversations pop up. And uh, as a professor, I never know what's going to develop in my classroom every day when I show up. So uh, how can we uh, when uh, the question would be what advice do you give a professor that is not is getting outside of his comfort zone on how to respond when something about racism and institutional or policy or, or, or um, world racism or whatever pops up in their conversation, what should they do? What should they not do? Like how, how can they uh, engage and prepare students to talk about it and tell them that it's okay uh, if you have any advice for faculty? Yeah, I mean, there are two things, one of which we already spoke about. So if we don't have an increased competency around these areas, we're going to be woefully underprepared. And that's part of it, right? These things come up. We have not been prepared to have these conversations or to facilitate them. And usually we revert to the things that are very normal or germane to us, which is like avoidance, right? Which doesn't solve the problem. Or we revert to our biases to reinforce some of the racist stereotyping and things that happen in classrooms. So, you know, you may never actually feel ready, but you can feel prepared. And that's part of what the push needs to be is a certain level of preparedness to address these things in part by improving your competency. I think another thing that's important is that we have to build a container for these types of conversations 
prior to those conversations taking place. And what I mean by that is when we think about, say, the first day of class, right? For many of us, it's sort of this perfunctory thing that we do. We go through the syllabus and we kind of move on. We don't necessarily spend a lot of time creating a community, right? And developing community norms and ways to engage and starting to develop relationships that will build, you know, as many folks have talked about this, uh, we call like the container for the conversation. Right? And if we don't have a container for this conversation, ultimately it's going to spill out into some sort of chaotic you know, um, set of events that typically happen because we don't have norms of how we're going to engage. We haven't decided the ways that we can do so in, in a respectful and cordial and collegial manner. Um, right? We haven't decided how we're gonna deal with and addressing harm that maybe takes place in the classroom. These are all parameters that help people prepare themselves um, to know that these things may happen. Right? Of course, they happen a lot in, in the courses that I teach, um, but if and when they do happen, how will we deal with that as a community. And this is a thing that faculty don't have to uh, superimpose on the classroom that you can actually generate together in the classroom to determine what those norms of engagement are. We talk a lot about being able to create safe spaces and I'm kind of of the opinion that no space is inherently safe, right? We create safety and continuously recreate safety every time we come into this space. So I think if we could think thoughtfully about like how to build a space that allows to have a difficult and courageous conversation. There's some great work by uh, Singleton and Linton um, that calls for the four agreements for courageous conversations that I use a lot. Um, and these are just sets of agreements that help folks think about ways to one, be able to speak their truth, right? So what does it mean to come honestly and open to the space to speak the truth for yourself and not to speak for everybody else that's a part of your group or not the expectation that anyone can speak for a larger group. Uh, what are ways to stay engaged? It's easy for people to check out and say, hey, like this is not for me to talk about. Can we make a commitment to stay engaged in the process? And part of that means we have to be active listeners, right? We have to be sure that we're listening not to just respond, which is a consistent thing we do, right? It's a sociological phenomena, but uh, actually we're listening to hear what people are saying, right? And that's a big part of staying engaged. Um, other parts we have to accept and expect non-closure, which is one of their agreements that says, hey, we're not going to solve racism in this course. We're not going to solve it today in this conversation. So we need to enter into this space knowing that we will not find closure, but we can make progress toward a better understanding of how we relate to this uh, particular situation and how we relate to it in the broader world. And I think those are some guidelines that may help folks think about what to do in these situations. But again, if we're not prepared, then we're never going to be ready to deal with these things as they come up. And if we haven't prepared our classroom to facilitate those conversations, we're always going to be in a spot of trying to rapidly respond without having the skill set to do so. Right. I agree with you. A lot of my students, they, they tend to just, as you said, like stay out of the conversation or when I ask them a question, they're like, well, it depends. And I'm like, okay, no. I mean, if you have to pick one side or the other, let's have a conversation, but you know, especially when they are not used to having those conversations at home, uh, like we are in the classroom, the people that should be encouraging them to say, hey, it's okay to talk about this. You have questions about race, you have, you can ask your classmates and definitely build that um, um, community in the classroom is very important. So I think that's a great advice for every mm -hmm. single faculty in the college uh, classroom. So I think there's one other point that you kind of alluded to, and I should have addressed this too. You talked a bit about like, what are things not to do? And I think we often are in this situation where there's a student who doesn't want to engage, right? And, and I mean this in a racial conversation, white students who don't want to engage, right? In part because of the concern of being interpreted as or saying something racist. And I think it's really important that we think about in conversations about race, we don't place the burden or expectation for students of color to spend the entire time talking, right? To relive their trauma, to have to explain to their white peers like what is going on and how it's being made sense of. And in fact, we have to invite the white students into the conversation in part that if somebody says something that is racist, right? Or maybe interpreted as such. One thing that can be really helpful is critical questioning, which in part is asking people to clarify, right? That you have to actually defend the position of the statement that you made, 
or you have to walk us through why you would ask a question in that nature, right? Because I think it shifts the onus of responsibility from folks of color to the person who actually did the action, right? And so many things that happen in society and within our classrooms often make people of color be responsible, right, for addressing or moving the conversation forward, even though they're the people who have experienced the violence in that space. Um, and so I think we have to be intentional of not letting white folks off the hook from not engaging in race talk, right? Um, and I think part of it is facilitating that so they become more comfortable within a classroom setting to be able to do that. Uh, but most of us, again, when we think about the, the constituencies of faculty, right, like 80%, I think, of faculty are white, right? Mm -hmm. So what does it also mean for white faculty members to know how to engage these conversations with their white students? Uh, because many times things will happen in the classroom. The students of color will be like, wow, that was really racist. And the faculty member will do nothing. They will not intervene. They won't make any sort of comment. Um, and so what does that mean too? Again, going back to that competency piece um, in terms of white faculty who are not intervening and then students of color are again left sort of holding all the weight and gravity of that moment. And nobody that's in a structural position of power having done anything to ensure that they can be more safe in the classroom. Right. So it definitely starts with us in the classroom and uh, follows with them what to do, what not to do and prepare them that it's okay to have this type of conversations. And uh, yeah, definitely, I, I, I agree with you. And it's hard to do, it's, it's, it's easier said than done, but it is doable and I think uh, we should all definitely do it. And uh, do you think that now it's easier or more difficult to talk about this type of issues in the classroom? And I'm saying like this year particularly, well today is November the 5th, we don't know the results of the election yet. Uh, but you, we know all this uh, racial tension after the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and many others. Do you think it's easier to have these conversations or more difficult now? I don't think it's ever easier to have the conversation. I do think at this moment it's harder to avoid, right? Um, and I think that is a part of the sort of highly mediated society in which we live. Like you can virtually never turn on a TV or anything on social media without seeing um, a video of a black person being killed, right? Um, or being subjected to some form of violence, um, you know, by the state or by police in particular. And so I think it's harder for us to avoid these things in part because students have as much, if not more access to this information and to these media than many of us as faculty members even do. And I'm, I guess, a relatively, you know, young faculty member, but there's like technologies and apps that I'm not even aware of. And like, like I'm not on TikTok, right? That's like just not for, for my particular age bracket, but students are exposed to these things. And so when I talk about this notion of funds of knowledge as what students enter into in terms of their expertise, they also enter into the classroom with various forms of trauma and triggering and activation that we have to be prepared for. So one of the things that we often hear is this happened in the broader world and my professor didn't even address it. And as a student of color, I had to sit here the entire, you know, class thinking about the fact that Breonna Taylor's killers were not going to be indicted. And it didn't even come up, right? And I'm, you know, one of three Black women in this class. And so I think because we can't avoid that, we, again, have to be prepared and ready. And I don't know that we are. Um, I don't know that people know how to make sense of or make an appeal. And again, a lot of it's cautionary on behalf of, of white folks who don't want to say the wrong thing or don't want to do the wrong thing um, and don't know, I think, how to appeal and just a very human level to folks, right? And I think that's part of the larger white supremacist project is rendering people that are not white as anything but human, right? Or less than human. Um, and there are some faculty to be sure that probably agree that what happened to George Floyd was absolutely necessary because he committed a crime, right? Um, and so I think there's a larger set of responsibilities then that if we're no longer allowing individual faculty to determine whether these conversations happen, 
then we need to be thinking about what leadership can and should be doing to ensure that these conversations are happening and that their faculty are prepared to facilitate them. Um, and so that's a question for department chairs, it's for deans, it's for uh, college and university provosts um, that are expected to provide, like we look at the K-12 principle as instructional leaders, right? What do you do in these situations? Um, and so no, they're I think very much unavoidable. And when we do avoid them, I think we often cause more harm as a result of having avoided a thing that is obviously weighing on people, right? I think many of us had um, email sent around about what do we do for class this week, right? Do we have class at all? Do we postpone it? Do we think of pushing some assignments off to extension? Um, these are similar questions that we need to have when we think about maybe protocols that we could design, right? When like nationally known uh, traumatic events happen, but I think even more so for uh, institutions to take stock of what happens locally, right? Everything doesn't make the news. For every Breonna Taylor, there is a person that we don't know. Right. For every George Floyd, there's someone else who's been subjected to this form of violence. And that happens in local community. And when we think about who's attending institutions, which I think you can appreciate given where you're located, right? Like a lot of them are local folks. And so when a thing happens down the street or down the road, like are we in tune enough to know that or if we're not, if somebody tells us about that, right? How do we respond in a humane fashion? Um, and I think these things are really, really important, but they certainly don't get easier, right? Talking about racial injustice isn't an easy thing to do, nor should it be. Um, and I think the undoing of it equally is not going to be uneasy. And we have to lean into that discomfort, uh, which is actually coincidentally another agreement that has to happen when we're building these conversations. We have to lean into the discomfort of that moment and figure out what we need to do as an institution, as a class to, uh, to address this. Yes, yes, and uh, not avoid it because that would be the worst thing that we can do. And there's so many resources, student groups, uh, that we can organize events. Um, I'm personally the lead of the civic engagement uh, at my campus, so that we're already talking about this type of topics, so we can kind of not be afraid of, you know, saying what, what has happened, but definitely not avoiding them is, is key, and I appreciate uh, you developing on that. It is very important. So I, I want to be respectful of your time, and those are all the questions really that I had for you. It was uh, great hearing from you. Is there anything else you would like to add or conclude with? Um, I don't think so. Not specifically. Um, I know there were some questions that we didn't necessarily get to. I don't know if you wanted to incorporate any one of those. I um, could definitely answer one or two more. There was uh, one, uh, one, but I think it kind of was talked about. Um, like, you're, uh, we're, we're talking about article uh, that faculty should incorporate more literature or more text from different diverse authors. So one of the oh, sure. one question that I missed was uh, what else could they do? But I think we kind of said it in conversations, uh, kind of assignments uh, thing. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if you wanted to kind of say what else other than uh, choose um, texts that are more diverse. What else could faculty do? Yeah, sure. So I think one, the cautionary note about incorporating quote unquote diverse authors is the assumption that all authors that are not white agree on a perspective or articulating a perspective that maybe is more agreed upon within their racial or ethnic community, um, right? Like we know that there have been um, racially minoritized scholars who advance white supremacy in their work by reinforcing problematic notions and stereotypes about people of color. So we have to be cautionary that we just aren't picking random Latinas or random black folks or random Asian American folks to incorporate into the literature if they're ultimately still doing the work of white supremacy. I think that's really important. Um, I think in addition to that, we have to expand what we consider the text for the course, right? Like in, we'll say research institutions, we rely overly on articles that are produced in peer reviewed journals. 
well, what does it mean to take a text that isn't that, right? Something that's a bit more accessible, a bit more humanizing that perhaps illustrates a very similar concept or point from, you know, television, film, um, or, or other forms of media, or maybe looking at novels as a way to explore a theme, um, right? Um, I think about that in the context of STEM all the time, right? When we think about the representation of, of racially minoritized folks um, in the sciences, right? There's a number of texts in sort of even just the sci-fi space or Afrofuturist space that can be brought in to better illustrate ways in which people of color are making contributions to the way we think about these concepts and these topics. Um, and so we have to be willing to explore beyond this sort of rigid academic sort of epistemological you know, sources we have, which are not just peer reviewed articles or university press books. They're in fact, the things that we engage with in the real world that we have a lot more to, to think about in terms of contribution. And there's so much more out there now, right? Like it would not be hard to be able to find a lecture from some series that was done at one institution to be brought into your classroom at your institution by a scholar who doesn't teach there, right? And I think that's part of it too, is ways to rely upon our colleagues that we know and those that we don't know come to the classroom now that we're in this virtual format like we should be much more open to having virtual guest lectures right um this is sort of what we're doing right now you're able to reach out to me as someone in a completely different universe to have this conversation and so we should be open to exploring those as, as well when we know that maybe our faculty as a whole right aren't representative of the students that we're trying to serve and that there are folks who do this work that we can bring in and we should compensate them for right but bring them in to have these conversations um to ensure that like we, students are getting the experiences that they need. And this is a critical point to do that. Students are coming into and, and in the college university setting to get some of this information, some of these skills. And again, we're woefully underprepared. So how do we navigate and be nimble and be reflexive in this moment to respond? Yes, definitely. But as you said, we have to be careful not just to feel that, oh, a Hispanic or a, a Asian American author just because they're the diverse. We have to be definitely careful. Right. You live you live in Texas. I'm, I was born in San Antonio. So we know that like everybody isn't on the same page, right, about like what we should do or how we should approach. But that's typically what happens. Right, right, right. Yes, I get you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you very much for this great discussion. Uh, a lot of important things to still develop. Uh, I'm sure this conversation will be very helpful for the listeners of the podcast when all this is done, uh, different colleges and things, ideas on how they can develop, implement and promote anti-racism in the, in, the, in the classroom and just start the conversation. 2021 is around the corner, so gotta do it. Gotta it is. Yeah, 2020 taught us a lot of things from our nation, so it's too is, many things almost. <laughs> this is the moment that we need to seize and, and start this conversation with our our uh, students in the classroom and just spread the word about this. Indeed. Well, thank you again, Eric. I really appreciate the chance to engage and hopefully this won't be the last conversation that we have with one another. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, My pleasure. thank you for your time. And I'm going to stop the recording right now. And I appreciate you very much. And thanks for all your research. Uh, I, I found those articles and I, uh, it's just amazing. Pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for reading them. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Take good care. Bye-bye. This podcast series was produced by Paul Eaton, Assistant Professor of Educational Leadership at Sam Houston State University in conjunction with doctoral scholars enrolled in Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education, during fall 2020. You can contact Paul Eaton via email at pwe003 at shsu.edu. Content and perspectives presented in this series are intended for educational use. You can download a copy of episode transcripts and show notes at 
http colon backslash backslash bit.ly backslash anti-racist college. The views and opinions expressed on this program and series are those of the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Sam Houston State University. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Building the Anti-Racist College and University.